Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hey, Mike and Tamar. So I think of myself as an environmentalist. I do all the things that I think I'm supposed to do for the planet. I recycle. I try not to fly too much. But I still eat beef. So I guess I'm wondering, how much of a problem is that? Like, do I have to give it up completely to help the climate, or is there some middle ground? Okay, thanks. Ah, beef. No issue in food is more contentious than that. All you have to do is say the word beef in conjunction with climate and all Twitter breaks loose. Half of the people say, you know, beef is what stands between us and a climate that can sustain us. And the other half says, no, beef is the thing that will save us. And never the two shall meet. Well, look. Beef is awesome. It's delicious, right? It's like the slogan says, it's what's for dinner. But if you care about the climate, it really is a big, big problem. You know, ranchers and other people in the industry, you often hear them say it's not the cow, it's the how. But a lot of it is the cow. I agree with you. But the how matters, too. And for some reasons that don't have anything to do with climate, like the well-being of the cow or how farmers integrate it into their operations. But some parts of the how also do have an impact on climate. And it's complicated and it's hard to account for and people disagree about it. So this episode, just in time for grilling season, is all about beef. Maybe we can convince you to declare independence from the meat that's grilling the earth. Oh, Mike. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. So as I was thinking about beef and how intertwined it is with the American identity, I thought about the movie Red River with John Wayne. And there's this scene where he's out on the the plains and he's got a couple of cow hands with him and there are hundreds or maybe thousands of cattle running behind him. And, you know, it's exactly the same thing that you see in in the Marlboro Man commercials. This is this, this stereotypical American scene, but one man's stereotype is another man's icon and beef really is an iconic American food. And I think that John Wayne sums it up right here. You got to listen to this. My land. We're here and we're going to stay here. Ten years and I'll have the Red River D on more cattle than you've looked at anywhere. I'll have that brand on enough beef to, to feed the whole country. Good beef for hungry people. Beef to make them strong, make them grow. So the audio encapsulates, I think, ideas about beef, but it's even more powerful when you actually see the pictures of John Wayne and the ranch hands out on the grasslands with all of the cattle. It encapsulates not only how we think about beef, but how we think about America. Our relationship with beef is positively John Wayneian. It's in our DNA, it goes hand in hand with ideas about, you know, rugged individualism and American exceptionalism. It's really deeply rooted in our cultural identity. 
I think that's totally right, right? I mean, it's uh, beef is America. It's the open range. It's cowboys. And here in Florida, it was the crackers, right? Who cracked the whip. People always think of America as the land of opportunity, but it got its reputation that way because of its boundless land itself. And that's why we had so much beef, right? There was plenty of land to run the cattle. Um, It really is not a coincidence that today when you see people on Twitter, it's sort of the, you know, the meat equivalent of rolling coal, right? Where they're posting their burgers to say like, you're going to take this out of my coal dead hands. This is a way of showing that it's, you know, it's part of who we are. We eat meat. We eat beef. Okay, but that's that's like a really obnoxious way of showing it. I mean, on the other hand, think about it. If you're a rancher and this is your way of life and you still do run cattle and you still do ride horses, sometimes over tens of thousands of acres, and a lot of those ranchers take pride not just in the animals that they raise, but in their stewardship of the land. And if this is in your family and you've been doing it for generations and it's not just a job or a business, it's a calling. And then all of a sudden in the last 10, 15, 20 years, the coastal media elite are coming out and saying, hey, wait a minute, all those cattle that your family's been running for generations is contributing to this thing called climate change that you may or may not believe in because your political allies may or may not buy into it. But all of a sudden, it's undermining not just your livelihood, but your identity, everything you think about yourself and the good things that you have done for your land, for your family, for the people that you're feeding. I get why they're angry or upset or confused. It's not all, you know, social media jackasses throwing your burger in your face. Well, I think you're being very generous to the handful of ranchers in America. Many of them work hard and some of them are still cowboys um, or at least wear the hats. But I think when you think about meat culture in America today, we're more talking about, you know, six billion served at McDonald's, right? I mean, the kind of fetishization of meat and burgers and steaks, the average American has three burgers a week. And the average American is not, you know, riding a horse on the open range. I get that. And I know that most people are so far removed from ranches that this doesn't really touch them in any way. But I think the political polarization probably does. And I think meat has become associated in some ways with the right. And if you look at surveys of who eats what, which you always have to take with a grain of salt, it does show that, you know, right leaners eat more beef than left leaners do. And so, the cultural identity is probably more aligned with politics than it is with, you know, the John Wayne version of the American West. But beef itself is something that just about everybody loves. You know, one of uh, my friend Sean McElwee, who's the, you know, the pollster from Data for Progress, when he used to, in every poll, he used to include a control question where he would ask people about whether the government should put up statues to Nazis, um, just to basically see if people were paying attention. Because if they answered yes to that, you know, 
obviously that was ridiculous. But people always complained about the question. So instead, he replaced it with questions about whether the government should ban beef <laughs> because it's just as or almost as unpopular. And it's not a coincidence that when climate deniers want to attack climate activists, they accuse them of wanting to ban beef, of only caring about cow farts. Um, it's because it's part of our culture, not just by the uh, the people who are the rolling coal equivalent on on Twitter, but because people love it, it's delicious. And, you know, our human ancestors started eating meat two million years ago. We really evolved to eat meat. But don't you think attitudes about beef do split right and left? Well, to some extent, they split along climate lines about people who care about the climate and don't. And, it's and that really splits right, right and left? Yeah, sure. And I think that's because, you know, not because lefties have some sort of built-in antagonism towards beef, but because beef is not just bad for the climate, it's way, way worse than pork or chicken or dairy or anything else. I think this takes on a life of its own, like any issue that begins to be polarized. So it can start with, yeah, beef's not so great for the climate, and the left can sort of start paying attention to that, and the right can start pushing back against that. But as time goes on, people become more and more entrenched in the position, and it becomes more and more polarized. And now we have these two groups that basically do split right and left, no matter who's got what on their menu for July 4th. In public, you have them, you know, entrenched in their groups, lobbing nasties over the parapet. And I don't think there's any way that we can reconcile this because it is so politically associated. Well, let's talk a little bit about the facts, right? Because uh, setting aside the politics, it's not just you know, crazy activists who are making up this notion that beef is a climate problem. But the big problem is the land use. You know, we talked about how the beauty of beef in America was that we had so much land. Well, this is how a lot of it is being used, not just in America, but around the world. The earth is increasingly becoming a cattle pasture. It now uses nearly 50% of all agricultural land is used to run cattle that provide about 3% of global calories. And it's not just like a little bit worse than chicken, it's four to 12 times worse, depending on how you do the math. It's not just worse than your beloved lentils, it's like 20 to 60 times worse. It is by far the leading source of deforestation around the world. Um, and as you know, deforestation is already 10% of our carbon emissions, and it's growing more. So again, when people talk about food as a problem, a remarkable disproportionate percentage of it is beef. It, it's a damn shame people don't like lentils as much as they like beef. Or we yeah, wouldn't have it's a not podcast. as good. <laughs> <laughs> I, totally, I totally get that. But I also want to point out, so the problems with beef, yes, you pointed out the land use problems, but it's really a one-two punch because there are two factors that contribute to beef's badness. Land use is one, and the other is just the methane they produce when they digest grass. And cows right. are People are always joking about it, like, oh, the cattle farts. It's like, it's a thing. It's mostly burps, but... <laughs> it, it, but it is a thing. Yeah. It doesn't really matter which end it comes out of. That's right. And, you know, ruminants, the same thing that makes ruminants 
great in a way, which is that they can turn grass into beef, is the problem. Because in doing so, they produce a whole lot of methane. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And this is the reason I get frustrated when we talk about how meat is the problem, meat is the problem. But it's really beef because, as you mentioned, chicken, but also pork are way better than beef from a greenhouse gas perspective because pork pigs aren't ruminants. They're they're what's called monogastrics, which means they only have one stomach and they don't produce methane when they digest. And, you know, they can't live on grass, but they can actually eat more plants than people have given pigs credit for in the past. And there are actually a lot of farmers who are doing work on that. That's right. I mean, one thing I always point out is that, uh, you know, like if you're vegan, that's awesome. You're doing something really great for the climate. Um, if you're vegetarian, that's really good too. But if you just don't eat beef, that's in most cases just as good as being a vegetarian because most vegetarians end up replacing that pork and chicken with dairy products that are just as bad for the climate um, because, again, cows are a problem. You know, we're, we're circling it around and we're going to talk about, you know, the potential upsides of beef. But from a climate perspective, it's, it's the lowest hanging fruit. It is, but it's not all the same. And there are ways that we can make beef better. And I think they're important to talk about but also to put in perspective in the big picture. Yes, you can make beef better. How much better can you make beef? Well, that's up for debate. I know I've, I've been already doing a lot of trashing of beef, but uh, let me say that there are at least nah. two pieces of good news. <laughs> Look, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but the, the first piece of good news is that it is possible to eat less. Um, and we know that not just because I'm trying, but because Americans, and in fact, much of the rich world, now eat about one-third less beef per capita than we did in the 1970s. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, the developing world is eating more beef, and that's, in many ways, it's a good thing because they need more nutrition. They don't need enough beef. And as billions of people exit poverty around the world, which is terrific, they're going to eat even more. So we're going to have to deal with beef as a problem. But the other good news, as perverse as it sounds, is that beef is such a disproportionate part of the climate problem, and it uses such an extraordinary amount of land, that if you can figure out ways to make it a little more efficient, make it a little bit less of a climate problem, you can have an extraordinary impact. All right. Well, I think we should talk about some of those. Beef can be better. The question is, how much better and how do we make it better? You know, it's funny. I think a lot of people, when they go to the grocery store, they assume that their way to help the planet is by getting grass-fed beef instead of corn-fed beef, right? Or maybe organic grass-fed beef. There's this sense that it's, you know, it's kind of more natural. You're kind of letting cows be cows um, instead of forcing them into these horrible industrial feedlots where, you know, where grain is sort of poured down their gullets and they eat all day long so they can get fat quickly. But I think from a climate perspective, corn-fed really has some advantages. And the advantage is efficiency. To the extent that this is a land use problem, you want to increase the amount of beef that you can produce per acre of land. And providing more food more quickly uh, reduces the amount of grazing land that you need to 
raise all these cattle. And at the same time, the faster you can get them into the feedlot, it's called finishing them for a reason. You know, you're fattening them up, but it shortens their lifespan, which shortens the amount of time that they're burping out methane. But again, the, the key is going to be efficiency. And these industrial feedlots, um, whatever you think about jamming all these cows in and optimizing their feed and optimizing their veterinary care with antibiotics that are creating all kinds of health problems, you know, and giving them numbers instead of names. It's, uh, it doesn't square with our idea of the open range and, you know, sort of the, the freedom of the frontier. But from an efficiency climate perspective, it's a lot better. The United States has the most efficient beef in the world. We have 8% of the world's cattle and pro produce 18% of the world's beef. And that just shows that we're doing it better from a climate perspective. But it's not just that it doesn't square with our ideas of the open range. I think that a lot of people, me included, balk at the idea of taking an animal that grazes by nature, putting it in a feedlot, feeding it something that makes it gain weight very quickly, sometimes, although not always, having to give it antibiotics to ward off infections and things. It's not all just this sort of visceral pushback about, you know, what the American West looked like. It's about a very real concern. That's totally fair. But let me, before, and I want you to talk about that in a second, but before, can we, can we maybe agree? I'm thinking about my last visit to a feedlot where I was with a rancher who was very upset about the kind of the the reputation that industrial beef has. And he was showing me how he was aware of every drop of water that's used on his on his feedlot. They manage every drop of manure. You know, they know where it's going. They're using it as efficiently as possible. And they're, you know, they're really, you know, people say factory farm in a bad way, but in many ways we like factories and that they're efficient, um, even if they're treating sentient creatures like edible widgets. Um, but again, since if... The goal is efficiency, and I agree it's not the only goal. Feedlots do a great job of it, and from a climate perspective, that helps, right? It totally does. And I am not explicitly anti-feedlot. And, you know, years ago when I wrote about this, I had a long conversation with Temple Grandin, who is widely recognized as being an expert on animal welfare. And she talked about how it's all in the details of the feedlot. And probably the single most important thing about a feedlot is that it's well-drained because otherwise you end up with, you know, cows up to their shins in muck. And like every other kind of farming, and, you know, we have this conversation about crops too um, and about farm size, about organic versus conventional. We always want to put a label on something and say this, this kind is good and this kind is bad. But the reality is there's good and bad in just about every way you can raise food. And, you know, I grow oysters, something everybody thinks is, is a boon to the climate, and it can be. But I'm here to tell you, you can raise oysters in a bad way, too. It's not the label, it's the practice. And we don't usually know the practice. But, you know, if we're going to talk about practices, I well, want to Well, from a climate perspective, though, right, a lot of this is about math, right? It's sort of how many acres do you require to yeah, produce yeah, how yeah, many pounds? 
true, of beef. Mike, but you're weighing yeah. that math against the well-being of an animal. And that sure. does come down to practice. And so, you know, it's not just math. Other things come into it, too. And I do want to circle back to the whole grass-fed thing, because that's where a big conversation about practices comes into play. And this is how the whole, you know, it's not the cow, it's the how thing, I think, got started. Because obviously, you know, cows graze. They always grazed until we started putting them in feedlots to finish them. And to be clear, all cows cattle, beef cattle, begin their life on grass. It's only the last few months of their life that they go in a feedlot. So it's the last few months that that we're really talking about. But now farmers, ranchers are experimenting with different ways to graze cattle so that they can use the movement of the cattle, the trampling of the cattle, the manure of the cattle, the grazing of the cattle to improve soil health. So, you know, we're talking about practices. So let's circle back because I want to talk about not just grass-fed, but grazed, because people are using grazing as a tool, not just, you know, it's better for the cow, but it can be better for the environment. It can be better for the soil. It can sequester carbon. And people are now beginning to measure that in rigorous ways. Uh Uh-oh, Tamar, I think you might be talking about regenerative grazing. Uh, Speaking of buzzwords, right? That's all everybody's talking about. You know, the Biden administration, General Mills, Nestle, everybody's all about regenerative these days. Can you even talk a little bit about what that is? No, because I hate that word, and I try (laughs) not to use it. (laughs) Because basically, people use it to describe any kind of farming that they like. And I think we have to be a lot more specific than that. And obviously, when they use the word regenerative, it implies that you're building something, that you're building soils back. But I've used, I've seen it used in so many different contexts that I am, I'm boycotting it. So I'm going to talk about grazing in the specific way that people are using it to try and minimize the uh, the climate impact of cattle and to try and use cattle to rebuild soil health. And that's what they're doing with this. Well, what uh, what is it generally? What, what kind of grazing practices are you talking about? Just trying to mimic the way that bison roamed the earth, where they graze in one spot for a while and then they move on, rather than the way traditionally cattle have been grazed in this country, which is you put a few on a lot of land and they wander around at will. And so people are trying to mimic that activity in the hopes of generating the same kind of biodiversity and healthy soils that we had in the prairie. You know, I I got to visit Tom Steyer's regenerative ranch in California. You know, he's the the kind of green billionaire who uh, ran for president and, you know, founded a bunch of climate organizations. And it was actually incredible to see it. Exactly like you said, they were trying to sort of mimic the the patterns of the buffalo. It's very labor intensive because you kind of have to move them from paddock to paddock. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're a billionaire, you don't really care about that stuff. And like you said, um, they're very rigorous about monitoring everything that's happening there. And they're getting some really incredible results in in terms of the biodiversity of the shrubbery, they're they're getting some nice grass growth, even in seasons where they wouldn't necessarily expect it. They're getting 
excellent erosion control. The uh, the ground is is really holding on to the water a lot better. And I must say, it's like a gorgeous ranch. It's like a really beautiful place. And apparently, like five years ago, it was a mess. It was what you'd call kind of degraded agricultural land. Mm-hmm. That said, the punchline of my story that I wrote in Politico magazine is that the soil carbon numbers have actually gotten worse, um, and the stocking rates are really terrible, which means they're really they're, they have very few cattle per acre, which means essentially that you're going to need more acres to produce the same amount of beef. So they're providing a kind of premium beef for people who want to feel good about buying regenerative. But to me, at least, it doesn't really seem like a scalable solution if it's actually making the carbon problem worse. And I think that that goes to show a couple of things. First of all, sequestering carbon is harder than it sounds. Yeah, but, it's hard. But also that grazing is even more local than politics. So it really depends <laughs> on where you are, what kind of land you're grazing. And there have been a lot of studies on this, and some of them show appreciable amounts of carbon being sequestered. But what they don't show is the ability to make carbon neutral or carbon negative beef. As far as we can tell where we are right now, that is not not a thing. It is magical thinking. And the idea that we're going to be able to do it at scale and feed the world this kind of beef just seems very far-fetched to me. But I don't want to minimize those other advantages. You know, I would even go a little further and say a lot of these studies that do claim to show that they are sequestering more carbon are either A, sketchy, or B, extremely localized in ways that make you think it's an outlier or at least certainly not scalable. You know, what what you see in a lot of these studies is they talk about the potential for storing carbon. Um, There's so much agricultural land, there's so much pasture, so all you'd have to do is store a little bit more carbon and you'd have incredible gains. It would offset all human emissions. Um, There's a global movement called the four per thousand that started after the Paris Accord in 2015. And their point is that all you'd have to do is increase soil carbon by 0.4% on all the world's agricultural land, and you'd basically eliminate the climate problem. We'd get down to 1.5 degrees. (laughs) The problem is nobody's figured out how to increase soil carbon 0.4% in any kind of consistent way. It's sort of like looking at a bank and saying like, oh my gosh, look at all the potential that bank has to store billions of dollars. But it doesn't really say whether the dollars are actually going to end up in the vault. And I don't think anybody has really proven that they can get that grazing cattle, um, which creates all kind of environmental problems that everybody acknowledges, um, can really get that carbon into the soil vault. I, I totally agree. But I'm really glad there are a lot of people working on it. Because like like you said up top, you know, beef is so bad that if we can find ways to improve it that are affordable, that we can do at scale, we can have huge improvements in the planetary diet's impact on climate by just improving this a little bit. Because let's face it, we people aren't going to eat less beef en masse anytime soon. So we have to do what we can on the production side to make sure that beef that is as well-raised as possible is available to everybody. But of course, there is lots of disagreement about what 
ideal beef is and what does as well-raised as possible really mean. And I think that's right. And I, even, even uh, Beef Basher Mike has seen some examples of really promising strategies to make a better beef. And a better beef can go a huge way towards reducing agricultural emissions, um, which are right now one-fourth of all emissions. And since two-thirds of agricultural land is essentially for livestock, this is stuff that we really need to, need to work on and scale and, dis- and disperse globally. So let's talk a little bit about the future of beef and what your ideal future looks like. I can do that. So when I think about the future of beef, there are going to have to be changes on the demand side and the supply side. Now, on the demand side, you know, I hate to say it, we all love it, but people in the developed world are going to have to eat less of it. Some of that might come from people eating more pork or meatless Mondays or just deciding that they care about the climate a lot more than they have in the past. Um, I think that a lot more of it is going to have to come from some of these plant-based or eventually cell-based alternatives. They're going to have to get better, and they're going to have to get cheaper, <laughs> because otherwise people aren't going to eat it. It's going to have to be like Tesla. They're going to have to build a better mousetrap, because I think it's probably unrealistic to expect people you know, to eat stuff just because they think it's good for the earth. Um, they're going to have to eat it because they love it, and because we love beef so much— the best beef alternatives have been the ones that have most closely imitated beef. But that said, there's still going to be some real beef. And I think there are some promising examples of ways that you could make it better. Um, You're starting to see additives that can be put into the feed so that the cattle burp less, or certainly burp less methane. You're seeing seaweeds. There's a chemical compound called 3-NOP that's getting near approval in some countries. And so I think you are going to see ways to at least make the cattle that you already have out there you know, less of a problem. But the real opportunity is going to be higher yields and maybe some more carbon storage on the land, if not on the soil, possibly above ground. You're seeing some exciting results, especially in Latin America with silvopasture, where instead of focusing so much on storing carbon in the soil, you're just putting trees on the on the pasture, which not only does it, you know, provide a lot of carbon storage because trees store a lot of carbon that you can see above ground and it's not hard to count, but it's also providing shade that as the earth gets hotter, that's going to become more and more important. But again, the real key is going to be, I think, efficiency and increasing yields. And that's going to be better breeding, you know, better nutrition, um, better breeding of the grass. Because remember, a lot of ranchers are essentially grass farmers. And if you can make grass that grows better and is more nutritious and creates beef faster, you're going to provide, you know, more meat with less acreage. And that's really going to be the key to avoiding deforestation and carbon emissions. So I have to say, I largely agree with you. Um, what? <laughs> no. Alert the media. Oh, wait. Take it back. <laughs> so uh, th- I think, though, that we already have built a better mousetrap, and it's called pork. <laughs> and what I would like to see is more focus on 
growing pigs, which are way more efficient than cattle in all kinds of ways. They're more fertile. They get to slaughter weight quicker. They're much better converters of feed. And they're monogastric, so they don't burp uh, methane. The problem with pork, in my mind, is the way that we raise pigs. And they're raised in densely populated, confined spaces, often in unenriched environments. And I think if we can find a better, more humane way to raise pigs, and there are some pig farmers who are already doing this, and we can really push pork as a substitute for beef, I think that's going to be a lot more palatable to meat eaters than any of the fake meat substitutes. And I got to say, it's certainly going to go over bigger than lentils. So, (laughs) and all of those things that you talked about, about ways to improve beef, I think are super important. And I'm really glad that we have people working on them. I would be in favor of putting some government dollars toward research on some of those breeding programs and some of those feed additives. But I really think that the lowest hanging fruit here is diverting some of the beef demand to pork, especially perhaps in the parts of the world where meat demand is is growing fast as people are lifted out of poverty. And, you know, it is kind of scary how much we're agreeing, but I think uh, I think most of that I will co-sign. The one thing I will say, and I know we're going to talk a lot about this in future episodes, is that I do think there are real technological opportunities. And people don't like to hear the word technology in the same sentence as the word food. No, they um, don't. But let's face it. Uh, alternative protein, alternative beef, alternative meat and dairy, those are biotech solutions. And there are certainly, there are always going to be people who shy away from that. But the cow, while there are certainly breeding improvements and feed improvements and all kinds of improvements, the cow is a pretty mature technology. (laughs) It is a, you know, it is an ultra-efficient processor of of grass into beef. um, And it does a really good job of it um, with all kinds of bad side effects. But Alternative meat is really new. It can get more nutritious. It can get more efficient. It can get, you know, tastier. Who knows what it can end up doing? So I think in the future, you know, we're going to need not just modest changes in our food system and particularly our beef system. We're going to need radical changes. And I do think we shouldn't underestimate the changes that we've already seen from the impossible foods and beyond meats of the world, um, which you know may not be quite good enough yet, but are way better than the hockey puck veggie burgers of the past. And as we move into better plant meat and someday meat that's made from animal cells without slaughtering the animal, I think there are real opportunities to, you know, for step changes in this kind of thing. And I think that's going to be fodder for, what, six, eight other episodes? But in the meantime, you know, July 4th is is coming right up. And we kind of promised to answer the question, should you have beef on your grill? And I think for me to answer the question, I would say... I think it's still okay to have some, but you should probably have less. You know, maybe we don't need three burgers a week. If we only had two burgers a week, we would save a land area the size of Massachusetts every year. So maybe stick an Impossible Burger on the grill this year. And enjoy the holiday.
So, Mike, we did the whole episode without saying, where's the beef? That's right. Or, we have the meat. Good on us. We want to hear from you. This show is about answering your questions. So give us a call, 508-377-3449, and bring us the hard questions. Or you can drop us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. We could feature your question on an upcoming episode, especially if it's about fake meat. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media. This show is hosted by me, Michael Grunwald. And me. Tamar Haspel. Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey are our executive producers, and Ann Bailey is our senior editor. Cecily Mesa Martinez is the managing producer, and Dalvin Abouage is our associate producer. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc are the engineers. Were we not terrible? The best way you can spread the word is by giving us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. And if you have a climate-conscious foodie in your life, please send them a link. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. 